I'm Malcolm Abram, Cleveland.com, The Plain Dealer. Oh, thank you. Oh, very nice. And uh, you all know why we're here. We're here to celebrate and talk about the life, art, and work of uh, Damon, uh, Damon Vincent Furnier, better known to the world as Alice Cooper. And we have here an esteemed panel of esteemed guests with many, many awesome stories and experiences with Alice and Cleveland and the music business. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk to him, and it's going to be cool. And we're going to start with the man whose book named this Shock Rock Talk. Uh, I got I to gotta whip out a paper because he's been around. <laughs> he is an author. He's a writer. I've been reading this guy's work since I was in high school, and I'm in my 50s. Yeah, ruminate on that. Uh, he's, uh, he was with the Detroit Free Press for many, many years. Uh, he's the man, uh, did you, you founded the Music Hound? Essential Album Guides, if you've ever read those. If you haven't, you should, they're awesome. He's, uh, he's uh, co-written true stories behind the most famous legends and traveling man on the road and behind the scenes with Bob Seger. Uh, he edited the ties that bind Bruce Springsteen, A to E to Z. Get it? A to E to Z, Bruce Springsteen. And uh, he is the man who wrote the book We Are Here to Celebrate, and which you can purchase multiple copies of out there in the lobby. Alice at 75. This is Gary Graff. Hey. And now that I've started in the middle, we'll just go all kind of higgledy piggledy and see what, what happens. We have next to him is. The legend. I could just say his name and say legend. And you all know who I was talking about. He means the old guy. <laughs> he, uh, if you went to a concert in, in this area, or really most of the Midwest in the last 50 years, uh, good, good chance his company's name was on the ticket. Um, yeah, the legend, Jules Belkin. The promotional half of Belkin Productions, and a man who has seen and done more with rock and roll than most of us wished, yeah, dreamed. All your, all your little teenage dreams, he's, he's been there, he's done that, man. It's amazing. And another legend that all of you uh, rock and roll lovers know, if you listen to the buzzard, <laughs> this, this is the dude who made it as awesome as it was during its heyday, as well as, I'm sorry, also uh, WHK and WMJI. Uh, he's a three-time Hall of Famer, the uh, well, wow, Broadcasters Hall of Fame, the Cleveland Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame, and the Rock Radio Hall of Fame. He wrote a really interesting book in 2007, a memoir about the buzzard, and he's uh, just an all-around cool guy, Mr. John Gorman. <laughs> And last but certainly not least, we have here, he's, he's one of you with a fan, the hardcore, lifelong Alice Cooper fan. He's also the man who knows more about metal and rock than most of us, all of us pretty much. He's uh, got the longest running metal radio show, all right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, worked, he worked at Warner Brothers for 28 years. Came across the path, crossed paths with Mr. Cooper several times. Uh, he is, if it's, if it's got a distortion pedal and bar chords on it, 
musically, he probably can tell you about it. Mr. Bill Peters. And we're uh, we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna let these guys talk, man. We're gonna we're gonna get some stories. We're gonna get some history. We're gonna clue you in on on who Alice is as a man and a performer, and why he's still around at 75, still rocking, y'all. He's still rocking. Uh, but before that, I'm just out of curiosity. I'm just curious. Who here has uh, seen Alice Cooper live? All right. So everybody, every, all right. Who's who here has seen him at live at least three times? All right, all right, five times. All right, here we go. Ten timers. I knew you were. I knew it was you. There you go. All right. This brother has a tattoo. Give it up. Signed. Give it up. <laughs> All right, so I just thought we'd start really, really basic with your, the, when you first became aware of Alice, what, the, the, the time you became aware of him and you thought, this is cool, this guy's got something. Let's, let's start with Bill. Me? <laughs> okay, I'm just a fan. Yeah. Okay, um, all right, Alice Cooper, uh, 1972, I was 12 years old. And I heard I used to listen to the radio a lot as a kid, sports talk and music. And I heard schools out on CKLW out of Windsor, I think, right? And um, oh man, I mean, how could you not love that song if you were like 12 years old, sixth grade, growing up on the west side of Cleveland? You know, school's out for summer, school's out forever, school's been blown to pieces. Oh my God, I was like, yeah. And you know, there was no internet back then. So, you know, you couldn't get a lot of information. So, honestly, as a 12-year-old naive kid on the west side of Cleveland, I thought Alice Cooper was a woman that sounded like a guy for months. I mean, you know, I'd hear this song on the radio. Oh, God, great. That's really cool. But, man, she sounds so much like a guy. How does she do that? It wasn't until, like, three months later, I believe, um, I was in a grocery store with my mom. And I always go to the magazine rack to look at the Baseball Digest and all that. And right in the front was a music magazine with Alice Cooper on the cover in full drag, horror, macabre. I'm like, oh, my God, he really, she's a guy. Oh, my God. And then I opened up the magazine, and not only was, you know, she a guy, but there's this whole horror stage show going on. I saw the electric chair, um, the noose, you know, the snake, everything, the band. Not only was Alice Cooper the singer, Alice Cooper was the name of the band. So right then and there, that changed my life forever. I mean, I was a fan for life from that point on. All right. I, I imagine that is a similar story for some folks in here, some other folks in here. Yeah. Schools, that was, that, that was me, and then we're talking in the early mid 70s uh oh one thing i forgot to mention about gary is he is probably the only person in this room who has actually talked with alice cooper every year at least once every year for the past 35 years so we'll, we'll get to that but what what brought you under the spell of alice cooper gary well i came like bill as a fan uh, and we're about the same age i got in on i'm 18 so uh i was 11 
and it was 71. And, you know, the same thing. You hear about this Alice Cooper. But what impressed me was everybody seemed to hate him or her at the, at the time. I was lucky enough. I had a brother who was 11 and a half years older than I was and was a hippie. So I grew up listening to the best music. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, Motown, everything you could think of that was the initial rock and counterculture music. Except my brother hated Alice Cooper. The hippies did, and we can talk about that more later, about what he meant. But the hippies hated him, my older brother hated him, and my parents and their friends loathed him. <laughs> and so to an 11, 12-year-old kid then, it's like, that's for me. Um, when it came to your older sibling, it was like, this is something that can be my own. Because the Rolling Stones, Beatles were great, but they weren't your own. Um, Alice Cooper could be mine, you know, and then I could piss everybody off by liking Alice Cooper. <laughs> so that, that's really how I came to him, started buying the records. And the record, you know, so much gets spoken about, and so much attention is paid to the makeup and the stage show. But the, you know, the hidden story in a way, or the underappreciated story, is how good the music is. And so I get, came to an appreciation to the music. I was a fledgling bass player at the time. And Dennis Dunaway, the, the, mem the bass player in the original Alice Cooper band, I'll put up alongside Jack Bruce as one of the most innovative bass players. So I learned a lot about what I had to learn uh, as playing bass just from listening to Alice Cooper records. All right. Uh, Jules, you are a businessman, so... I'm guessing your, your first exposure was business-related? You're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Actually, you're right. My exposure was a whole different exposure from these guys. I was already much older, and um, I went to a history book today that uh, we have from Balkan Productions that gives me all of the dates that we did over the 40 years that I was active in the company. And so I was very curious, uh, because I didn't remember, what were the dates that we did with Alice? And the first date that we did, our first exposure to Alice, was in 1971. And Alice was really not the headliner. Alice opened the show for Black Sabbath with Edgar Winter in the middle. And I know most of you have seen that one, right? No hands on that one. Uh, so that was my first exposure. And it, um, it lasted for many years. Uh, perhaps later on in the discussion, we can talk more about them. All right. Mr. Radio Man, uh, again, business, okay. businessman. I, yeah. I was I was in Boston at the time and uh, working in radio and also writing for a magazine called Fusion, which was a uh, short-lived rock magazine. But <clears throat> uh, I remember the first two Alice Cooper albums came out on Frank Zappa's label. Uh, they weren't anything to write home about. But I remember the third Alice Cooper album came out, and. I was told by the, uh, uh, the, the label, I said, you got to check this out. This is nothing like the other two. And I remember listening to it, and oh, and 18 came out, the single 18. And I was like, that was just a powerhouse. I mean, it, it was like, you talk about a teenage anthem, that was it. And um, when the album came out, I'm listening to saying, 
God, every song on this album is great. This, 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 isn't, this can't be the same band. But beyond that, you know, I, I took note of that. And at the time, uh, I'm, I'm living in Boston, they, and they were doing a series, uh, uh, the summertime concert series called Summer, Summerfest. And they would bring in and do free concerts in the summertime in different parts of Boston. And uh, they had booked a John Lee Hooker concert at the Boston Common, which is the, was the center of Boston. It's a beautiful park right in the center of the city. And they were looking for an opening act. And I, I got a phone call from the woman who was, who was booking it saying, uh, did you ever hear of Al Cooper? And I said, sure. yeah. I said, you know, he used to be the lead singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And then, you know, he... he and Cooper then, with a and K, then he sure, did the yeah. super session with, you know, Mike Bloomfield and all that. I didn't know what he was, you know, he said, I know he put out a couple of albums on his own, but, you know, I don't know what kind of drawer he may be. I don't know if, but it may work with, you know, Joe, uh, John Lee Hooker. And he said, well, and so she said, well, let me get back to you and get you more information. And she comes back and says, no, I'm all wrong. It's it's a it's a girl. It's a singer named Alice Cooper. <laughs> and I said, I think you have the sex wrong. And I started explaining. Well, no, Alice Cooper is a guy. Actually, it's a band, but the lead singer is also Alice Cooper. I said, Do you remember Manfred Mann? Everybody who's named Manfred Mann, same thing. And uh, I said, Well, how do you think he'll work? You know, this band will work with John Lee Hooker. And I said, should be interesting. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't know about, I knew so much about the theatrics that there was, you know, because I, I, I looked it up and, yeah, he puts on this, this show. But, you know, it was, the, it, was, it was very primitive compared to what Alice did in later years. But nonetheless, they booked the show and the audience was completely, it was a free concert. And the audience is mostly there older, you know, to see John Lee Hooker. But when Alice came out and did the, the band did that show, it just blew everybody away. I mean, I, I, I was feeling bad for John Lee Hooker. He had to come on after this. But nonetheless, that was my introduction to uh, Alice Cooper. And then I was saying, you know, I, I was listening to the album again, saying, you know, this is a solid album. There's so many cuts on this, this album. And WBCN was the big, you know, Boston album rock station at the time. But they were looking at, they were trying to get an older college audience. And he said, you know, I think Alice Cooper's a little too young for us. You know, they, they didn't want to be into that. They kept saying, you're missing a boat. You've got to play this guy. And on top of that, you know, they had that hit single, 18. And they put out a second single, which was called um, A Caught in a Dream, which was the second best Alex, uh, song in that album. And it sounded like the Rolling Stones. It was really a powerful album. That could have been a big hit, except the Rolling Stones came out with brown sugar the same week. <laughs> and so it kind of killed that from happening. But nonetheless, Alice Cooper was established, and that album in 18, between the album and, 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 and what he was doing on stage and the whole image, you know, he ended up on Time Magazine. Uh, you know, he was the talk of the town. Like, what is this? You know, you, you were getting parents saying, is this right for our kids to listen to? So, I mean, he did everything right. That band did everything right, and they were, I'm telling you, I still remember that concert to this day. They were a powerhouse. I mean, they were like the Stones. They were that good.
Yeah. So Alice Cooper and John Lee Hooker, if they got together, they could do Boogie Chicken, right? Exactly. <laughs> hey, also, uh, today is the 53rd anniversary of the Love It to Death album being released. No kidding. Yeah. Boy, today. you picked a day. You picked the right day. 53rd, everyone. That, 53rd. that is, I think that is one of my top 10 rock and roll albums of all time. Yeah. Love It to Death. Is that, so that's your favorite Alice record? Or? Oh, it's, it's one of the top 10. One of the, one of the top 10. Is, the, is your top 10 filled with Alice Cooper records? Uh, no, that's the only one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, so yeah. So Alice Cooper comes on the scene, blows kids, kids and adults and promoters' minds wide open. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, by the time, all right, you booked them in 71. Uh, you got here, you got to MMS in 73, 73 right? When it was about to go country. Right. Let's yep. let's all take a moment and be happy that didn't happen. Um, so at, at that time in, in '73, uh, the rock and roll touring was still kind of a free for all, right? Kind of a promotion-wise, still still kind of a wild west thing, right? It's not as codified and and perfected and digitized as it is now, right? Jules and and John. Um. I'm going to take you back one year. Please. You're talking 73. I'm going to talk about 72. Mm-hmm. Because in 1972, as most of you remember, there was a big concert series at the Akron Rubber Bowl, which I always speak about because it was really one of my favorite group of concerts ever. <clears throat> we had everybody that turned out to be Hall of Famers. On that series, there was... Um, the Stones played with um, Stevie Wonder. Uh, yes was there. The Osmonds, Three Dog Night, Chicago, etc., etc., etc. But one of the uh, weeks was Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, uh, and I'm trying to remember the opening acts. But the thing that I remember about that particular show, this was just when. Uh, School's Out, the album, came out, and they were doing a major promotion. If you remember that album, the cover was a desk, and if you open the cover, inside was the, the record, but it was enclosed with a pair of panties, paper panties. Well, we're doing the show, and right before Alice came on, a helicopter comes across the field, and drops paper panties. Well, yeah, can you imagine what the audience, it was crazy. And, and I, unfortunately, um, I didn't save a pair. Uh, but uh, that was kind of the highlight of that, that season because it was so unexpected. And from there, of course, Alice just kept going and going and going. And as a as a veteran promotion and marketing man, you you had to you had to be impressed by it. a helicopter dropping panties <laughs> on the east side of Akron. You'll never see it again. You'll never you'll never see it again. <laughs> all right. So uh, another interesting thing about all our panists, they've all actually myself too have uh, spent some quality time with Alice. And like I said, Gary knows him quite well. Gary can tell you how badass his mom was. 
<laughs> so, so Gary, you went. You were a fan. You were a young fan, and then you met him in the early '80s. You saw him in the in the mid '80s when mid-80s. he did when he did the comeback tour. See, when he, after he went through his second rehab, which was which was the successful one, uh, he came. They brought him back in 1986, and they weren't quite sure how this was going to go. Not so much with him, but did the audience remember him? He had those of you who are fans or know his history know that there were a series of albums some of which he at least he claims that he doesn't remember making, and, and with really good reason uh, for, for most of them. So there, there was a lot of uncertainty. It's funny to think about now because he's a very reliable ticket. Um, but back in 86, they weren't sure. So that was the first time I encountered him as a journalist. I had seen him as a, as a fan and as a teenager. But they, what they did was they brought him back to Michigan uh, you know, because that, that was home turf. That's where the band returned to. Alice was born there. And the band returned to Michigan where they made Love It to Death and Killer and really established the Alice Cooper that we know and love. So they figured this is home turf. Let's bring him back here if it's going to work, if they're going to embrace him, and if they're going to give him a pass for being away uh, so long, it, it'll be here. So they did a week of shows. Uh, in smaller towns, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Saginaw, all leading up to Detroit, where they had him play what was then the only arena date of that tour at Joe Louis Arena for a VH1 Halloween night concert. This was all Halloween week. So that's when I got to encounter them, and they were extremely accommodating because they were almost to a shameful state because they were trying to bring him back. Um, but, you know, he had been, at once he had been through rehab and once he had cleaned up and became more of the Alice Cooper person than he had been prior to that, really an engaging guy who was very serious about being an entertainer and a showman and a, and a musician, but just as serious about being a good person the other 22 and a half hours of the day. And we just, we just hit it off and... You know, as you noted, a year hasn't gone by where I haven't talked to him at least once about something because he's always doing something. He's touring if he's not releasing albums. You know, as an adjunct to um, what you're saying, Gary, uh, first of all, all that he's talking about is in his book. It's it's really an interesting book. Um, and I uh, would recommend, this is not a um, hype I'd recommend that you take a look at it. It's it's a lot of good stuff. Anyhow, you slip Stacy the invoice before <laughs> this, didn't you? <coughs> when you the, the master about marketer 80, can't help himself. Eighty-six. Uh, I remember looking at again my history, and I saw that we played Alice twice in eighty-six in Cleveland. Once in Music Hall, I think in August, and then November we played them at Public Hall, and so I really couldn't remember what it was. And so I asked Gary tonight, and of course he told me it was the album, um, the rejuvenation of, of um, Alice Cooper. And apparently it did so well at Music Hall, we thought it was time to bring him back at um, Public Hall. If I can interject something about that period for the radio guys here. So what was interesting was they, when they came back with uh, Constrictor and the album after that that I'm going to forget, but somebody... Raise your fist and yell. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this, was not, this was not... See, two old guys, one brain. It works great. Um, 
These were not radio. These were not albums made for radio plays. These were big, hard, abrasive albums. He was trying to place himself in the contemporary metal world. How did that? How did that? That kind of thing play well, at radio? Yeah, I mean, well, his earliest, you know, the the hit album tracks and the hit singles was so strong that the later material just didn't compare as far as the listens. I know that every Alice Cooper album that came out that we would play it, but yeah, you know, we'd depend on the response, and the later albums did not get the response. In fact, it became, why aren't you playing 18, or why aren't you playing Only Women Bleed instead of something new? And, you know, that's the problem that all artists have, because, I mean, they, you know, Alice had some brilliant albums uh, prior to that. And, and, you know, what you're saying, too, is I remember in 1978 when... Uh, uh, that was Welcome, the, what welcome was to the My album? Nightmare. Yeah, and, was, and uh, he put out the single Clones. It was the album that had Talk oh, Talk on right, it, too, yeah. and all that. And I remember we played it, and we started getting a, a positive reaction at first, but then both sides, the, the, the people that liked what was new wave and modern music were saying, he's a phony, he's trying to be one of us now. And then the metal guys and the, and the, rocker, you know, the rock and rollers were saying, he's trying to sound like, like a new wave band. And so, I mean, it, it, it was one of those things where one canceled the other out. And uh, he really never had a big at radio album again, which is unfortunate because there was some good music on there. But it was limited to, I mean, he was getting more airplay at that point on college radio and, and you know, and, and that, that had metal show, that has a metal show and all that. But he was not getting the mainstream album oriented uh, uh, radio play. And it's just because the audience reaction, he, Alice just didn't fit what was going on at the time. And yeah. like I said, his old material just overwhelmed. Yeah, we love the heavy metal Alice, of course. You know, I'm on John. <laughs> well, you Car did, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm on John Carroll playing heavy metal shows. So, um, Constrictor wasn't real heavy, but Raise Your Fist and Yell was a, really a metal album. So, um, I play Alice regardless, all the eras. But he fit right in with college radio heavy metal shows during that period with Kane Roberts on guitar, the the big muscle man guy. So. Yeah, but uh. I, I personally feel like the, that, that sort of, hey, stupid, some of that, some of the early 90s, pretty metal stuff. I love Haste. I think it's one of the most was, underrated Alice Cooper yeah. albums, in my opinion. Was, I was just listening stuff. to it down on my drive down here. So, uh, so but were, you, were you getting feedback from, you know, the, the, the main, mainstream radio was like, yeah, but college radio was, woo, big yeah, open we, ears. We don't have any rules at college radio. We just play anything we want. So, um, you know, John's a little more restricted, you know, in the real commercial radio. But, you know, I'm just a fan playing music. So, um, yeah, you know, I'll tell you, um, Alice always gets a token with me because I love him so much. And I know there were some albums that were, you know, changing styles. The only album I didn't buy when it came out um, after I became a fan was Dada. I just didn't get that record. And I appreciate it more today, but... I was working at Warner at the time that came out, and I, I didn't even buy it as an employee sale. <laughs> I was just like, what is this? You just stole a copy, right? Oh. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Is, is Dada anybody's favorite Alice Cooper record? Anybody? There's got to be one guy here that likes Dada. Like, I right? love that record, man. <laughs> no? Yeah? There you go. All right, see, there's Alice has something for everyone. <laughs> All right. Um, 
So, uh, Gary. Yes. Actually, you know what? I would like to know how badass Alice's mother is. <laughs> okay. So this, was, this came out of conversation earlier, but I was once assigned to get Alice's mother from the dressing room to the soundboard at a place like Blossom. So we had to take her outside, up some stairs, and you know, get, get her out to the soundboard where she was going to watch the show from. She was my bodyguard. Um, little, little frail, the person, the one person in that venue who needed no protection, but for whom the security guards were there to protect other people from. <laughs> lovely, lovely woman. She, she really was, but she was badass. But, but don't mess with her. Don't mess with Miss Fernier. She lived into her mid-90s, right? Yeah, yeah they, they moved her eventually from Detroit back out to Arizona, where, where Alice has resided for a long time. And uh, yeah, she was, uh, she was a character. And she said, Alice always said that his mom said, when you retire, you expire. So she stayed active right up until her death. Yeah, very much so. And as, as, as Alice has, well, I mean, he's not, he's not dead, but he's very active. I guess is my point. Oh, yeah, another quick question. Who, speaking of, you know, records you did or didn't listen to, uh, has anyone in here listened to 2021's uh, Detroit Stories? Solid record, right? It's a good record. He's still making good records. There's not a, well, there aren't a lot of folks in their 70s still making good records that can still get on commercials. What, what is it about, what do you think it is that has kept him in, around, occasionally floating through the mainstream, where, you know, without having hit radio records, like, what is it about Alice, the, the person and the character that keeps him around, that makes him so affable and lovable and scary? You know, I'd say three things, and I'm sure there, there will be more, uh, but one is the fact that he keeps making albums. And, and keeps making new music. At this point, he's not necessarily doing it for airplay or, or even for sales. He's doing it for relevance. First of all, he's doing it honestly. He wants to keep making music. Um, but he's doing it for relevance. If you look at so many other acts we won't name, um, you, know, who have, you know, who have stopped being creative. Um, you know, um, who, you know, who I shouldn't say that about sticks. They've actually put out a couple of pretty decent records recently. Um, but, but I think it does translate to an audience, even if they're not buying the records themselves. It's like, this guy is still a working musician. He is not coasting. He's not resting on laurels. He's still working. He's still making music, still trying things. So that, you know, I think that, that keeps him very relevant and very active in the world. Also, that he still does an incredible show. And you know that when you buy an Alice Cooper ticket, you are going to be enormously entertained when you go to that show. And the third thing is he has not one but two generational album, anthems. And most artists would give their any appendage to have one. <laughs> and with I'm 18 and School's Out, Alice has these two songs that are going to outlive all of us, all of you, all our children, all of our children's children, and beyond <laughs> will be listening to School's Out from sometime in the middle of March through the beginning of June. <laughs> and that, yeah. every disaffected teenager is going to be listening yep. to I'm 18 and feel like that's their song. Yeah. This, this is a case where kids listening, going to their parents' record library, come across, who's this Alice Cooper? So, I mean, it's generational. 
I mean, you know, we have, we have grandparents of kids that, you know, also are fans of Alice Cooper. And uh, it's generational. I'm, you know, I'm surprised to this day that he didn't get, you know, a, host a TV show or do something like that or, or a movie. Because, uh, you know, you, you have multiple generations that have still, I mean, to this day, you have young kids that they, they find this Alice Cooper album and say, he's speaking to me because 18, the message in 18, the message for school is out, is strong today as it was back when it was first recorded. Uh, oh, yeah, go. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I just read an interview with Alice, and he said he appreciates his past, but he doesn't want to live in the past. And he's really big on keeping things fresh and new, as Gary said. And a lot of artists aren't like that. You know, they just want to keep playing the same old songs. And you go to an Alice Cooper show, he'll always pull out some deep album cuts from the earlier years. He'll always play a couple from the new album, and he does the core of the hits. It's the same format every time. It's interesting, too, because when you trying to get him to talk about the past in a formal interview is really, really tough. He doesn't want to do it. You know, he has new, thing, new things to talk about. So, and we've had this succession now of 50th anniversaries of, uh, you know, um, two years ago it was Love It to Death and Killer, then School's Out this year. It's Billion Dollar Babies and God Help Us Muscle of Love. And it's, uh, <laughs> but to try to, get, to try to get him to talk about it is really, really tough. I mean, he bats it away, which it, but he can because he has something more current and contemporary to talk about. Which is pretty awesome. I, I talked to him once. He played the, the Akron Civic Theater in 2011, and I got to talk to him. And <laughs> I'm sure some of you Northeast Ohioans will appreciate that. I, he, I asked him, you know, hey, what do you remember about playing? Oh, oh yeah, I played Cleveland. You know, I've been to Detroit. I played there all the time. And he talked about Swingos, how weird Swingos was. <laughs> and he talked about how difficult it was to get drunk off a 3-2 beer. For, for anybody who remembers, he's like, we'd, we'd be drinking that stuff all day, all night, and we'd just never get drunk. But uh, yeah, but it's, I think, I wonder if, if the fact that he, he you know, does, wants the sort of, uh, you know, terrified Housewives of America and the disappointed Dads Collective stopped hounding the scary guy and he just sort of settled into pop culture, uh, do you think the fact that he's clearly a nice guy <laughs> helps, has helped keep him around? Like he's, everybody, nobody says no to Alice Cooper. Hey, you want to be on my record? Yeah, man. Hell yeah. He's, his, the list of people who've been on his records is long and storied and amazing. Uh, is his nice guyness, you think, a part of it? Yeah. Um, and that he's a genuinely nice guy. It's not, you know, it's not a put on, you know, I have seen him in so many situations when somebody engages him, he is genuinely interested in talking to them and not just getting their praise for him, but asking about their story, you know, to the point where he is often dragged away, uh, you know, by, by his handlers. And what's always fascinated me is how he's worked his way into the fabric of pop culture and into places that Alice Cooper has no business being. Even back then, whether it was the Snoop Sisters or being on Hollywood Squares. The Muppets. Muppets. The Muppet Show. I mean, if, you, if you've never seen that, go on YouTube and see Alice Cooper on The Muppet Show. It's, li it's like it's he, is, he is so genuine in being able to fit into, you know, progressive insurance commercials like you saw and, and all the other stuff that it's, you know, 
everybody, I don't know people who don't like him. You know, you spoke about drinking uh, and Alice. Uh, it reminded me, um, when we get a contract for an artist, attached to the contract is a rider. And in the rider, it tells you what you're supposed to do to accommodate the artist and the band. What do they like to eat in the dressing room? How are they picked up limo-wise? Uh, just a, a myriad of, of things. The first time I saw the Alice Cooper rider was again in 1972 when he was a headliner. And it asked for a case of Budweiser. Well, that was kind of unusual because usually they would just say beer and they wouldn't give you an amount. And as it turned out later, I found out that the case of Budweiser was for Alice. Alice would knock off a case before the show, during the show, and after the show. And it was still the same Alice. And I always wondered, why didn't the Budweiser people here ever make him one of their spokesmen? <laughs> there are literally thousands of photos of him with, with Budweiser. Drinking Bud. Yeah. See? Master of marketing, ladies and gentlemen. Still. Uh, John, uh, tell me, uh, Cleveland has always kind of had a, a love affair with, with Alice. Actually, you could, you could probably all speak to this. What, what is it about uh, like the, the theatrical guys, the, the Bowies, the T-Rexes, the Alices? What, why does head down, blue collar, Northeast Ohio, Cleveland love these people? Because the city demands the best. That's why we're the rock and roll capital of the world. It's just that simple. At the risk of courting the audience's ire, Detroit has something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, but we've got the rock hall. You don't. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. All right. Neutral corners. Neutral corners. Wait the encore. <laughs> uh, Bill, when you, you, you were a fan, a 12-year-old fan. And then you, you go to Warner Brothers and you work. Do you remember your first time meeting Alice, crossing paths? With of course, yeah, of course, man. I, you always remember your first, right? Right. <laughs> Nin, it, was, it was 1986. I think we all met Alice the same year. Um, WMMS had an event that brought him into town before Constrictor came out. He was, had a long layoff because he was in rehab. And uh, I think it was at the Statler? Yeah, I think John? it was the Statler. Okay. Um, I wasn't invited. It was, you know, record retail people, the big shots, you know, were all in this uh, lunchroom. And one of my radio listeners on Friday, his name was Ian, he said, hey, I heard Alice is going to be at the Statler. This is before the album came out. Let's go down there. And I know you love him. You've never met him. I've got a brand new camera. I'll get a picture with you. I was like, oh, no, nah, I don't want to do that kind of stuff, you know, hang out in a hotel lobby or whatever. Well, he finally talked me into it. I said, all right, what the heck? So we go down there, and the door's shut. They're all in this big, giant room with the, the lunch. And we're standing there, and I'm like, there's no way we're going to get in here. There's nobody else around. And then, like, five minutes after we're there, Richard Shahinian, one of the owners of the record exchange, comes out of the door. Now, he knows me because I was a customer in their stores when I was a teenager. He sees me. He goes, hey, Bill, what are you doing here? I go, oh, well, um, my listener brought a, got a new camera, and we thought we'd just try to meet Alice. You know, I'm a big fan. He goes, oh, you want to meet Alice? I'll go in and get him. Hang out right here. So he goes to the bathroom first. Then he comes back. He says, now, don't go away. 
He goes right up to Alice. Alice is eating his food. He goes, hey, Alice, your biggest fan in Cleveland is outside the door. Can you come out and talk to him a little bit and take a photo with him? Comes right out with him. He, he talked to me for 15 minutes out there. <laughs> and uh, he was, I was so nervous because I, you know, I already had started working at Warner, so I was meeting artists. But I never was nervous, only with Alice, because he was my childhood idol, you know, posters in the room, everything. I was thinking, please don't be a jerk. Please don't be a jerk. <laughs> right. And he was just so cool. So if it wasn't for Richard Sheehan and going in there, and Richard is very bold, I, kind word to say, uh, to do that, I, I might not have met him then. So it was just so nice. That's my first encounter. First of many, then. <laughs> All right, Gary, you, uh, you know him best. So uh, obviously you were the, the easy choice to write the book, Alice at 75, part of a series of books, by Quattro Books, of super awesome artists who've made it to 75. Good for them. Um, clear, clear choice, but when you were compiling this book, and obviously a lot of it's from your own experiences with them, but when you were looking around and researching, did you, did you learn anything you didn't know or you think like most people, even hardcores, may not know about Alice that you could share? I mean, I hope there's a few things in the book that, that people that people don't generally know. I was reminded of things I'd forgotten. Uh, not a lot surprised me. And the, I mean, the worst thing in Alice Cooper's life was his rehab where he almost killed himself with drinking and drugs and had to go through rehabs twice uh, to make it work. And he's been an open book about that. So it's not like there's a lot of news there, maybe in some of the particulars. And there were certain things like his odd friendship with the early Sid Barrett Pink Floyd uh, back in Los Angeles circa 1967 when they actually lived in the same place when Pink Floyd came over to the U.S. So there's some things like that and little anecdotes. I mean, the worst, the quote-unquote worst thing you could write about now is that during the, the initial months of COVID, he and his family took up tap dancing. <laughs> out, out in Arizona, and is, is it that bad? Uh, you know, not, ne not necessarily. So, it, but, but what I was, you know, struck with and reminded of was how eventful and full his life has been and his career has been, and how, like I said before, how interwoven he is into the contemporary American pop culture fabric. I mean, he is just, he's gone from being public enemy number one to Uncle Alice. In it, without losing the edge, without losing the, oh boy, I'm going to see him get his head cut off. <laughs> hey, hey, Gary, I, I have one quick question, and it, it just came to me. I forgot. We had a Cooperstown restaurant here for a while, and it could have been page, great. Page 103 in the book. Yeah. I mean, okay. But it could have been great. And I, what, what happened there? I mean, I know that he was looking, f he was looking at different different places, and it just didn't. You know, I, I thought it was going to be a true rock and roll restaurant and it never really... And, you know, we know those things happen for franchises and all that, but what was the real story? Yeah, they had grand designs for the Cooperstown restaurant, you know, started in Phoenix, obviously, uh, here, here and in Denver. Uh, they had them, and he had, you know, had a good friend who was a restaurateur, uh, but sometimes the guys in the kitchen aren't necessarily the, the best yeah. businessmen. They had a good concept. I think what the, because they attached it so closely to sports venues, Alice being a huge sports fan, still a huge Detroit fan, but he, he has been a Detroit Lions fan, which has kind of been like being a Browns fan, as you know. Um, 
but he has he has he has maintained that faith. So he wanted you know desperately wanted to put one in the stadiums there, and just uh, it didn't work out. But I think they overestimated the connection between Alice Cooper and sports. Yeah. Being a golf monster does not necessarily mean that all the football and baseball fans are going to yeah. go to your yeah. to your restaurant. Because I thought it would be a great concept, and it just it never really captured Alice as a character, as, as, as a personality. Now, there was a lot on the... I mean, the menus were very clever, and they all had these kind of macabre rooms upstairs <laughs> with the tapes of creaky floorboards <laughs> and, you know, ghost noises. But uh, you know, restaurants are a tough yeah. are a tough business anyway, and and it ju it just didn't didn't connect. And I think the sp the sports tie-in had something to do yeah. with that. Yeah, All right. The uh, location really was always cursed. I think three or four different restaurants have been at that yeah. location. Yeah, the Phoenix one lasted for a while. Right, like eighteen uh, years. Yeah, right. yeah, that one. And that, but but it made sense because he could drop in on that. And he'd occasionally play there, so you could. Re and that's probably what the other locations needed too. That's fair. Who here ever ate at Cooperstown? I yeah. knew you were going to say it. Yeah. Was it, was anyone foolish enough to try a big unit? Big unit. Oh yeah. In in Cleveland. Like the opening, he just happened. He just. Rolling through? Yeah, because he's Alice, and he can do that. That's why he's cool. And, and for those who don't remember, the big unit was, uh, what, 22 inches, a full pound, Frankfurter on a baguette? Yeah, yeah great pig. Not, not heart smart. Don't do that. <laughs> All right, well, I, just, I, I ate there once, and I think I had a, a burger, and it was fine, but he's probably right. It, it's, it's, restaurant business is not like the rock and roll business. Although it is fickle, kind of like the rock and roll business, I guess. All right. So, uh, all right. Where, where are we? I don't have my timer. Um, Bill. Yes, true. Uh, actually, you know what? John, when, when did you first meet Alice? Boy, I forget the year. It, sometime in the 70s. I don't remember what tour. Around here or? Oh, here. Yeah. Here. It, it might have been the uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, uh, Alice Goes to Hell, right around that time. And, uh, you know, I guess he was, he was promoting an album, so he was yeah. very I mean, nice. Yeah, I mean, no, he, he was a nice guy, but it was also at a time when, uh, I, I, I think that's probably when he was drinking a little too much. Uh, it was the beginning of that. But uh, I just remember good memories of it. And, uh, you know, he was a nice guy. He was, you know, he said no one missed the nice guy. No, he was a nice guy. <laughs> you know, both of our radio guys touched on something earlier. You, met, you mentioned CKLW, and then I'm 18. So that's the story of how Alice Cooper broke. Warner Brothers was not sold on necessarily releasing a third Alice Cooper album. The two Frank Zappa albums yeah. were just abysmal failures. So another longer story, but Bob Ezrin... Yeah became their producer and their song doctor, as Alice puts it there, George Martin. And the first thing they cut was I'm 18. It was something that Bob Ezrin had heard in a song at Max's Kansas City in New York. It was a segment of an 18-minute song. And he heard the hook, and he built upon that. So they record this thing, and they still don't have the green light to do a full album. 
So they, they did record it, finished it, mastered it, took it over to Rosalie Trombley at CKLW. If you've ever heard the Bob Seger or Thin Lizzy song, Rosalie, that's who it's about. Okay, she was arguably the most influential music director in North America at that particular point in time. There's a documentary called The Big Eight. YouTube it, really fascinating documentary if you like rock and roll and radio. But they, work, they worked Rosalie like, a cheap, like they were the cheap you-know-whats. Um, they, they practically slept on the doorstep of CKLW to get her to play the song. And what they, they wound up going end around, befriended her son, Tim. And Tim took it in. Hey, Mom, could you? And Ro Rosalie plays it. Rosalie heard it first and liked it. She said, OK, this is a hit song. Played it, CKLW, a Canadian station. But the signal reached, you know, reached to Florida. You know, back then, there wasn't as much clutter in the air. It, it was a top five station in Cleveland in yeah. that time. Yeah, and so, and then once that happened, once it was a hit, before Warner Brothers had even pressed the single, so on one hand, they're ticked off at Alice and at Chef Gordon, his manager, for having usurped the record company, uh, but when something becomes that, you know, that gets that much airplay, suddenly bygones are bygones, and they, they couldn't press on 18 fast enough, and they green-lighted uh, the Love It to Death album. And aren't we all the better for it? Yeah, Ezrin thought the song was called I'm Edgy. Uh, <laughs> there are, again, you can YouTube, I think you can YouTube under I'm 18 and Max is Kansas City and hear this, this very freeform uh, piece uh, in which, like I say, Bob Ezrin had heard the, the kernel of I'm 18 and then took it, they were back in Detroit at the time in this barn in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, where they were hashing things out, where interestingly, their test audience were the residents of an asylum next door. <laughs> and this is no joke, they would line the fence on the property listening to these guys rehearse in the barn with the door open. And isn't it appropriate that the Alice Cooper we know and love was partly molded by the residents of an asylum next door? <laughs> that, that explains the I gotta get out of here <laughs> that, that is partly where the ballad of Dwight Fry came yep. from they, they knew what was going on they saw firsthand what was going on and he, he they, the band members will tell you there were people walking around the yard in straight jackets that is the best Alice Cooper story I've heard yet <laughs> That is, that is one hell of an Alice Cooper story right there. I, I, did, I had somebody come up to me at a concert once claiming that they were one of the residents. Really? Did you believe them? And, you know, you kind of sit back, yeah, so tell me about it from, from over there. And where are my friends, the security guards? Was he still wearing a straitjacket? He was not wearing a straitjacket, but the, eye, the eyes were a little... It, it, was, it was possible. It was a credible claim at that moment. <laughs> if you go to an Alice Cooper show in, in Detroit especially, they the freaks come out of the the wood the bona fide freaks come out of the woodwork, which is at once heartwarming and really, really scary. <laughs> oh, all right. So all right, Alice at seventy five, that means you had to come up with seventy five items? Wasn't hard. Right? I started, you know, you make the first list and it was hundred fifty. Um, I whittled it down to 120 and then figured I had, I, f I was starting to figure out how to cheat. 
uh, you know, how could I make, how could I, how could I slide some stuff into the 75 chapters from the, the remaining 60-odd or whatever? So is it cheating? Is it not? You know, hopefully, hopefully not. But, you know, things that were period-specific or at least appropriate to inclusion in the chapter. And uh, I, did, I did get an email from the editor when I turned in the manuscript. He said, you know, you, you, know you went 16,000 words over here. <laughs> 16,000? Wow. I said, well, it's a bargain then. <laughs> you know, you paid me for 16,000 words less. You know? And, you know, just make a bigger book, which they like to hear. Right. <laughs> it is a beautiful book. Uh, it does not. It's a big, beautiful, artsy coffee table book. Does not turn into. It's got a poster in it too. It's got a poster in it. Got some cool, cool pictures out there. Get yourself one. This man can sign it. Are there panties? If you want in it there? devalued, there are no panties. <laughs> it is pantyless. They did use them all up, and you know the panty story. I'm sure a number of you know, but where that came from was Shep Gordon. Alice's manager, another movie to watch sometime. It's called Supermensch, which is a documentary about Shep Gordon. Brilliant guy, brilliant marketer. They, did, they came up with the idea of wrapping the vinyl in panties. But when they were starting to look for panties, they weren't going to just go down to the supermarket and buy everything on the shelves. Shep came across this brand of panties from France that were flammable and illegal in the United States. <laughs> Now, this is the same guy who threw the chicken on stage in Toronto. So it, the light bulb goes off in his head. He orders a shipment of these illegal panties, tips off U.S. Customs that they're coming in, then tips off a, a reporter at the Associated Press in Washington that this is going on. So international news. You know, the band, the band that got busted for the wrong panties. They had the right panties on order, too. And then, as Jules was saying about the, about the show in Akron, they used the illegal panties once they, once they got them to drop on concert crowds. And they did it at a, not, in a number of places. One person who I do know still has his panties is Elton John. <laughs> he caught it at the Hollywood Bowl that year, you know, when the helicopter dropped the panties. And that, was, that show was what inspired all the young girls love Alice. <laughs> All right. Who? Didn't they, I, I, that Hollywood Bowl, I remember the story behind that, that there was a windy day, and a lot of those panties ended up on they Hollywood Hills. Hills. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you can watch 9-11 on Monday nights, and you might, you might see them pop up in some of the scenery. All right, who, who came here tonight thinking they would hear the phrase, illegal panties? <laughs> Probably nobody. All right, so I, I, think we can, I think we can get to the audience at this point. I'm sure you all have. Yeah. Yes, you do. All right. We got uh, two helpful folks over there with microphones. They will scurry around and over they will find you if, as you raise your hands. Or you're sitting right there. You can stand up and yell. Does Alice Cooper both write and compose? And what does he play then? Does Alice Cooper both write and compose? What does he play? Um, he plays a little harmonica. And he plays the sword and the guillotine. Um, Boa constrictor. He's not an instrumentalist, but he does he does compose. You know, like a lot of singers, he'll sing something, and then somebody he's working with, you know, who does who does compose more formally, will transpose that melody. And he writes lyrics. Malcolm, we have a question over here on this side. Turn right. 
Hi. Hello. Um, with Broadway always dipping into the rock and roll, you know, doing rock operas and stuff like that, have they ever approached Alice Cooper about doing Goes to Hell, you know, Alice Cooper Goes to Hell as a rock opera on Broadway? There's been a lot of talk about Welcome to My Nightmare being turned into a Broadway show. There's also been a lot of talk about bringing Alice to Broadway for a residency. The show itself is so theatrical and actually is a very thematic redemption story. Alice behaves badly, is punished, and then is redeemed in the afterlife or whatever you call it when he comes back from being beheading. So there are a lot of Broadway producers who think that, you know, who have approached them about that and the deal has just not been brokered yet. Partly, I think, I think they don't necessarily want to spend that much time living in New York. I think. They've never actually said that. But if I can tell one more anecdote that fits with this. Um, we were in Toronto a few years back to see the foreigner jukebox music, which I'll say on Ow, yeah. <laughs> um, at the app, this was one of the premieres, and at the Afterglow, the producers of that told us that Shep Gordon, Alice's manager, was actually coming into town to check it out and talk about maybe an Alice jukebox musical for Broadway. Um, know that Shep lives on Maui, and think about what some of the great cash crops of Hawaii are, <laughs> and I'm not talking about pineapple. The next night, we're in our hotel, and the fire alarm goes off. Some of you know where this is going. Um, and so we start to go down, start to evacuate, and then an announcement comes over in the staircase that uh, it's okay, we've contained the, you know, the, the issue to the 14th floor, it was just a smoke alert, you can go back to your rooms. Uh, the next morning, we were at breakfast, and we come back from breakfast, get onto the elevator, and uh, my partner, Stacy, who's around here, uh, nudges me, and she goes, Shep, huh? Shep. And I look, and there's Shep Gordon. It wasn't a hotel you'd think Shep Gordon would stay at, but whatever. And uh, we talk, you know, exchange a little conversation, um, go up and stops on Shep's floor. Anyone want to guess what floor uh, Shep was staying on? <laughs> So while he was there talking about maybe doing an Alice Cooper show on Broadway, he was also consuming some of the cash crop of Hawaii. <laughs> you know, one of the good um, chapters in Gary's book I found fascinating was the uh, it was about Alice's snakes. Uh, he's had a myriad of snakes, and he had a name for most of them that were really really cool names. So. Another reason to read the book. Find out about snakes. We just got another invoice. Good. Indeed. Was, was there anything on, if, as you recall, anything on his writer about mice? What or to feed the snake? Snake food yeah, no, or no. beer for the beer for my snake? No, I thought he he brought his own. <laughs> Malcolm, we've got one over here. Go. Okay, I could swear that years ago I remember a radio interview with Alice where he was saying that um, his father insisted that he learn or at least listen to and appreciate classical music before he started writing his own. Is that true? Not so much that. He was just exposed to, when they were growing up in Detroit, he, he had a family of characters, as you can only imagine, would give birth to somebody like this. But they were, you know, they were, you know, Midwest working class people who love their entertainment. One of his uncles ran a pool hall. 
um, you know, where Fats used to come play. And so he got exposed to a lot of culture and especially a lot of pop culture. So he really, you know, became a combination of classical music, you know, f you know, from his family, church music, because both his father and his grandfather were pastors, and real pop culture of the 50s, the early days of TV, the Soupy Sales Show, which came out of Detroit before it went national. So that's the, he is this crazy soup of all that, plus the stuff he picked up on later on. But I don't think they necessarily told him, if you're going to be a musician, you, you have to listen or know cl uh, classical music. Malcolm, over here, got another question? Uh, go! You mentioned uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. Was oh. that the prime time? I mean, I know the album and all that stuff, but the prime time yes. TV special. I, I'm younger than you guys, but I remember this big controversy when I was in kindergarten, something like that. And my grandparents were really pissed at my parents, and that they let me watch that. And, and I think that's when I became an Alice Cooper fan before I even could write, you know? And so, do you remember like a controversy about that? Well, there was a controversy that Alice Cooper was on primetime TV. That was an ABC special that was aired that, that was actually aired late at night. But the reason that that all happened was so the Alice Cooper band was in the process of breaking up, and Shep and Alice were going to go on their own and do something else, and they wanted to take it bigger and better. And they also were unhappy with Warner Brothers Records, their label at the time. And Ahmed Erdogan over at Atlantic had been making a big play for him. They were, they were still under contract to Warner Brothers Records, but they were allowed to do an album for another label if it was a soundtrack project. So they came up with the Welcome to My Nightmare contract. They made the deal for the TV show, filmed it, you know, did the whole thing, and released that album, which is, is his top-selling album, uh, they released it on Atlantic Records. And that, that was the one time during his tenure at Warner Brothers that he was, uh, that he was able to do that. Uh, well, that that was, was also brilliant in the, in the fact that, you know, Muscle of Love was a, it, it was not a good, and, you know, it, the band was in rough shape at the time, but uh, that was a great comeback. Everybody forgot about Muscle of Love, and Alice was back in the charts again. They were the, you know, that original, what happened with the original band was what you, you guys, everybody in the business saw go on with so many bands. I mean, think about it. In 1971 and 1973, they released two albums in a year. You know, U2 released... In the released, middle of touring. Yeah, so U2 releases touring. one album in a decade. And, right. And so they were doing nothing else but being the Alice Cooper band. And you can only do that so much. I mean, you're burned out from the road, from the touring and the traveling from each other. You're drunk, you're high, you're, and, uh, and they, just, they just fizzled out is what happened. I'll, I'll tell you, in Muscle of Love, though, um, Alice wrote a song for the James Bond movie, Man with the Golden Gun. And if you, go, you can Google now and the James Bond purists say that's like one of the best James Bond theme songs that was never heard. Um, Lulu got the track. And I think, did Alice submit that late? Was that the problem? Because it's a great song, and I think that would have really helped the album. They submitted it unsolicited, Oh, okay. you know, was the issue. Alice saw the, he went to the movie before that. And at the end of the, it used to be in the James Bond movies, they already knew what the next one was yeah. going to be. So at the end of the end credits, it said, next up, Man with the Golden Gun. And he went and he, he recorded the songs, but the produced the, this, and this was before Paul McCartney. 
and Live and Let Die. So the, uh, so the James Bond producers really had no interest in an Alice Cooper song, especially not one that they didn't solicit. So it kind of landed, much like many uh, rock and roll band demo tapes, it landed on a desk and in a pile and never really got heard. All right, very Fantastic. cool. Malcolm, again over here. All right, oh, can hello. the panel talk about the two new Alice Cooper records coming out, and will we ever see the original band since four of them are still living? Um, maybe on the latter. Uh, they have the original band has been writing with Alice again since 2011 and appearing on on some of the albums. So they're they, they're still they never actually weren't friends. I mean they were estranged from each other a little bit, but that didn't last very long. And and part of the reason for that was they always they were always taken care of. They were never cheated in their arrangements. You know, Mike Michael Bruce especially always got his song royalties. And the band always got their performance royalties. So, you know, once the, when they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 09, that really brought them back together and they started to do some writing. And like I said, guest appearances. They, at 2017, I think it was, they were the encore in, in Europe. They, on, it was a UK tour. And the current Alice Cooper band would play the show, go off, and the encore would be the original band. That's cool. So they're still continuing the talk, and Alice keeps saying maybe there will be a full original band album. Um, and that's one of three he says he's working on. He hasn't divulged the concept for the next one, but, there, but we can expect an announcement, I think, even this month about what he's going to do next, because he's, he's fixing to go on tour you know, again in the spring, and then and then he's going to have a summer tour with Rob Zombie. So the timing would would indicate that. Uh, in fact, they're coming. I think they're coming to Blossom, probably. Um, and uh, pardon, they're coming to Youngstown. Sorry, um, but uh, but so the timing. You know, with all that activity, the the timing would seem that we'll, we'll be hearing about something and maybe hearing something very soon. Very cool. Okay, here's another question. All right, Malcolm, we've got one here. Yeah, I'm a, a bigger fan of the, uh, the original band, to stay on that topic. Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, Bill started having on his show a lot of the uh, original members here and there. And uh, I was surprised to learn that a couple of them are from Northeast Ohio. And maybe if we could talk about those members. I always liked that original band. They had great songwriting chemistry. And, uh, uh, well, Neil Smith, the drummer, um, he's from Medina, so he comes back to visit family, and I meet him up at BW3 when he comes in. And um, Glenn Buck, or was it? Buxton. Yeah, Buxton was from Akron, right? Yeah. I believe, yeah, Akron. But um, Neil Smith is the guy I've met, I've met in Medina uh, about three times. He, he'll come in and just say, hey, Bill, I'm up at BW3, come on up. Um, but yeah, it's a cool connection. You know, it's not talked about too much, actually. And, and you know, Gary and I talked about this. I interviewed Gary on our radio, my radio show last Friday. Um, people come into Alice Cooper because he's been around so long at different points in his career, different stages he's going through, different sounds. And you're always kind of loyal to when you first came in. That's your favorite era. For me, it was the original band. And it always will be the original band. So those early records are just sacred to me. I like everything, but that's my favorite era. But there are fans who came in during Trash, and Poison is like their schools out and they're 18. I couldn't believe it. I went to see Alice in Germany at the Wacken Open Air Festival um, back in the mid-2000s, and uh, Poison is the most popular Alice Cooper song in Germany. 
the chorus came in and there's 100,000 people jumping up and down during the chorus. And I'm like, wow, you know, I never saw that kind of reaction here for Poison. So it, I don't know, when did, did people come in at different stages with Alice? They do, they Sometimes, do. Sometimes, right? you know, people came in during the Kane Roberts era and that's their favorite. Their favorite two albums are the Kane Roberts records. I have yet to meet anybody who came into Alice Cooper for Zipper Catches Skin. Um, or, or Dada. Or Dada. Or, or that. But there are, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the Kane Roberts period was aided by, uh, I'm sorry, I, I strike, strike what I was going to say. The Poison era was aided by Wayne's World. Because that came, you know, that that came right right on the heels of that, and that really, and that that as much as anything else we've talked about, cemented him because Wayne's World has become a generational rite of passage film. You show it to your younger siblings, maybe to your kids if you're a cool parent, and uh, and you know, and then and then they find out that this Alice Cooper guy is he wasn't just cast for the film that he actually was was iconic and again that's alice just flowing through the mainstream hey alice cooper still here baby dig me did and, anyone and come in during flash up. fearless versus the zorg women <laughs> did you come in during that one like that was another soundtrack that. alice was i'd on. really like to see that movie though i'm totally fascinated by that ridiculous concept um <laughs> malcolm we got one here she's been waiting patiently oh please please okay so Hollywood vampires, any idea as to how that diverse group of artists got together? And Please. any news, I know he's touring okay. with Rob Zombie because I'm a Rob Zombie fan, but any news on if that group of artists will tour in America? I don't know about in America, but they have some European plans. Um, and they came together. I mean, these guys are well. At one point, were drinking buddies, um, you know. Uh, and then they just came together, really, you know, through friendship and saying, you know, we really ought to do something. Uh, I was really Alice and Johnny Depp at first, and they met. They met. Met and became friends on the scene of Dark Shadows. Alice Cooper, ugliest woman in the world. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and then they, they kind of hatched this idea. You know, Johnny said, I, I play a little, and they played a little on the movie set music, and, you know, brought in Joe Perry and then everybody else and decided, why, why not? And the first album they did was covers and a couple originals, and then they did an original album, and they have been writing. That's one of the other many projects um, Alice, is, Alice has been doing. So they're, uh, you know, so you will be hearing... Uh, in fact, they just put up on uh, put out a video of doing um, what's the Johnny Thunder song? Uh, can't get my what around a memory. Well, thank you. Can't wrap my arms around a memory. So there's and that's a new video and that's that just came out this week. So you'll be you'll be you know the vampires will be biting us again. <laughs> Anyone else? We got one here. All right. Um, next. I would like to know maybe how many U.S. presidents Alice has met. I can only think of one. Uh, really, Gerald Ford. Um, and they were supposed to play golf together. Um, they, uh, in fact, he met him through the Friars Club. Do you all know who that is? That's the Jack Benny, Dean Martin, you know, Bob Hope, Milton Berle, who, interestingly, were the people in the 70s who got Alice Cooper and liked him, you know, well, he was the scourge of every one of those guys' fans, you know, our parents' generation. 
Those guys understood that what Alice Cooper was doing was the 70s version of the vaudeville they came up doing. They totally get it. Alice used to tell me that George Burns would say to him, yeah, Gracie and I, you know, back in 1923, we used to tour with this guy who had a guillotine and he cut his head off. And, and they understood it and they loved it and they loved him and they made him part of the Friars Club. He was the only guy who didn't wear a coat and tie. He wore a leather jacket uh, to, the, to the Friars Club. So that was, uh, you know, that's how, and through the Friars Club, I think it was Bob Hope called him over one day, Alice, I want you to meet Gerald Ford, things you don't expect to have happen in the world. And Gerald was like, all the Friars Club loved how good of a golfer Alice was too. And they used to fight to get him in their foursomes. So, uh, you know, and said, Alice, I hear you're a really good golfer. And they said they were gonna play the next day. And then, and then Alice is already, and something came up the next morning and he got the call. President has to go back to Washington. Sorry, he'll, he'll take a rain check. But that's the only presidential encounter I know of. It seems like some of them might have. I, I, you know, I don't know. I know he played Trump Tower. You know, that's I know, I, why do people Alice did. and Jimmy Carter would have been fun. That would have that would have worked. That'd have been interesting. Uh, him and Reagan were both in show business. They so were. Been, they came out of a similar. You know, Reagan was part of that Friars Club crowd. Oh yeah, sir. Oh. And I think would have been liked by broader crowds, but non-fans think the guillotines and the big shows, so don't even hear it. And then he had the problems with getting on the radio because it, they weren't radio albums, they were more singles. Was he ever discouraged from doing the big shows and hey, just be a mainstream artist and put out the big pop song and don't do the crazy show and you'll get way more fans? Well, Only Women Bleed was a mainstream hit. You know that that was not that was very un Alice Cooper like, and I don't. But I don't think he did. Um, you know, only women bleed, bleed and yeah. I'll never cry. To necessarily to be radio hits, they were they were both yeah. on concept albums, and they they needed that kind of song to fit the concept. I, I think Alice. I think he did want. I mean, in those days, every band wanted a hit song uh, because it would get it would get women coming to the concert. And, uh, you know, when the album radio, uh, album radio uh, rock format was popular, it had far more males than females. And uh, Top 40, on the other hand, pop music had far more male, females than males. And if you really, Bruce Springsteen was a good example of when he had Dancing in the Dark. All of a sudden, women came to his show before Brad Springsteen was just strictly guys. So, I mean, I think Alice Cooper, from a business point of view, yeah, he'd like to have hit singles, too. Yeah, they all try. I think Alice wanted to on his own terms, and it happened to be at the time of Only Women Bleed, or Only Women Bleed, and I'll Never Cry. He was working with a uh, with a musician, co-writer Dick Wagner, who was another Detroit. He had met him in Detroit, another Detroit musician, and Dick was a more melodic, melodically centered songwriter than Michael Bruce had been, and the other guys that Alice was writing with. Anyone else? Uh, quick question. There you go. Oh, please. Yeah, quick question. Uh, how did Can the, the panel uh, talk about the uh, connection with Cheryl? Uh, yeah, did you go on at the same time? What happened? His wife, who also performs in the show. Well, he and Cheryl met. They were, she auditioned successfully to be a dancer 
in the Welcome to My Nightmare uh, tour. Accidentally, and wasn't it? I mean, kind of, yeah. Casually, you know, casually, she was she was studying serious dance. I don't know what's more serious than getting impaled um, by, by, by your future husband. Um, but she was studying ser serious dance, and she was coming out of class one day. At least this is the story she tells. All sweaty and done from class. And it was almost like a stampede. And what, Hey, what's going on? Oh, we're all going to Encore for this Alice Cooper show. Uh, he's holding uh, to audition, and he's holding auditions for this show he's doing. And she thought Alice Cooper was a she. Um, at the at the time, she was a not, she was also a church. Yeah, yeah, her father was a pastor as well. But um, and a couple people were telling her, "You should do it. You're good. You should do it." I don't know this and that. Finally, she went and she you know she's hired to be a dancer in in the show. You know, she's one of the dancing skeletons and all the other crazy things that they did during that show. And she and Alice just found they found common ground. They they came from similar places and became very close fairly quickly on tour. But here they are all these years later, you know, still married, proud, proud partners, not just in life, but in the good deeds they do out in Phoenix. She's on the show, you know, she stopped for a while to raise the kids. But then their oldest daughter, Calico, became part of the show. And for a while both Calico and Cheryl were on the tour, and they used to flip a coin to see who got to pull the uh, guillotine uh, <laughs> uh, thing. And now, and now Cheryl and Alice travel together all the time, and Cheryl's still in the show. And it's, it's a very inspiring relationship. Rock and roll love. Shock rock love, y'all. It's a beautiful thing. And with that, we will uh, wrap it up. Um, please thank our, our panelists, Bill Peters. Author Gary Graff, who will be retiring to the uh, lobby to fulfill your dreams. Uh, the legend, Jules Belker. The other legend, John Gorman. And uh, give yourselves a hand for loving Alice and. Let's give it up for Malcolm as the, our I wonderful host. Survived. The legendary. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming. Uh, Music Box yeah, Supper yeah. Club has many things, many awesome things happening throughout the rest of the year. Enjoy. <laughs> Thanks.